0: Listening Dog Media. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins, and this is How To DJ. How To DJ. But when you're young and you're listening to people, it sounds like another world. So when I realised that this was a job that you could do, I became fixated on that then.
1: I want to be a DJ. How do you DJ? And he said to learn to to the floor. The instinct part is really, really important. These people who turn up at gigs and you, you hear them playing the same set, I think they should be arrested and led away.
0: A podcast exploring life stories, techniques, minds and experiences of much-loved DJs, where I asked them to pick five questions from a box of 45. And for this episode, a number one dance act.
1: So we sent it on the Tuesday and sent it to his record label, Double F Double R, and he played it on the Friday. And then... And everything went mad.
0: An act described by the KLF's Bill Drummond as the first true stadium house band.
2: So we try and turn up and try and set up an electronic kit, Tim's decks, my MIDI stuff, and half the time you just end up having to like hope for the best.
0: DJs who've run huge club nights and performed all over the globe.
1: A night called Mile High Club where he played disco and funk. So he got jazz in to do the Saturday night and... That's how I met Jez.
0: Jez Bullis and Tim Garbett. Utah Saints, welcome to How To DJ. Hi Chris. Hi Chris, thank you for having us. This is exciting for me. It's
2: exciting for us, thank you for having
0: us. <laughs> <laughs> Not least because I was in the sixth form when uh, when you got massive.
2: Excellent. That's, uh, yeah, the sixth form is quite a, a formative time, isn't it? For, for music as well i mean i i'm only saying that because i can remember being sit from reading every week reading the papers and, and the music papers and then getting into, into different bands but that's amazing to have that it's also brilliant for us to hear that because a lot of the time you make music in you have no idea of, the, of what's happening with it
0: you soundtrack my formative clubbing years wow. is that a good thing hopefully <laughs> <laughs> in a very good way brilliant great thank you that's cool a kid growing up in, in North Shropshire, it was a whole new world that opened up for me. At, at Park Lane, was our, our local nightclub in Shrewsbury, no jeans or trainers, and uh, a lot of Utah Saints.
2: Brilliant. We wouldn't have got in then.
0: Jess, <laughs> <laughs> the let's go right back to the start. Tell me about growing up and when you first got into dance music.
2: Right. Well, I grew up 10 miles from Carlisle, which some people confuse with Cardiff, but Carlisle's right at the northwest of. of England, about ten miles south of the, the border with Scotland, and it was it's geographically kind of got its own thing going on, and at the time got a bit overlooked musically, to be honest, in terms of touring bands. So I think I saw Status Quo about three times because they, they seemed to be one of the few bands. and the Undertones. Undertones, so so that's um, I, I can remember that. But basically, I, I can still remember I, I was into kind of rock music and and probably my favourite band was Thin Lizzy. I managed to go and see Thin Lizzy. And it, it I can still remember the first 10 seconds, quite emotional already, the first 10 seconds of that gig, because I heard the counting of, of Brian Downey's drumsticks. It was one, two, three, four. And then it was just a massive explosion of, of light and sound. And that was an epiphany for me. And I just said, I want to do that, whatever that is. And then the same summer, I went on holiday and I used to listen to John Peel and Radio Luxembourg because John Peel used to go to, to, to midnight. Luxembourg would go to four in the morning, and then I'd just listen to headphones and I had four hours of white noise and get up and go to school. So that explains quite a lot really. But I can remember hearing I Feel Love on the radio and just thinking this is a bonkers track and it's got so much power to it and it's got all the dynamics of rock music, but it's made by machines. So that started for me a journey of of the two things. And to facilitate that, I thought, right, how do I need to get into this? I thought hospital radio. I thought oh, maybe I've got, I can get onto the radio. I lasted approximately two minutes of that because I, I discovered a phenomenon called howl round, which I didn't know was a thing, which is basically when you take, for those of who don't know, you know much better than I do, but basically take your headphones off and put them near a microphone. You get a huge a bit of feedback, loads of complaints from the ear, nose, and throat department. And that was <laughs> the end of my uh, hospital radio career. So I started, this is a longer story perhaps than you anticipated, but I managed to get a bit of a summer job and I managed to buy a hi-fi, which is quite loud. And I borrowed my mates, dad's big speakers. And we hired uh, the local village hall, which is in a place called Warwick Bridge, which is between where I lived and in, in Carlisle. And we used to put, about once every couple of months we put on a night and it was 50 pence to get in or something. And I'd got my one deck and a load of rock records and quite a lot of the bikers, the local bikers would turn up and just sort of headbang bang to. loads of rock classics so I I learned that and then with some money from that and again a bit of part time money I bought my first Citronic mobile DJ setup which had two belt drive turntables so they always used to so mixing was a nightmare because they'd speed up to get going with that I started I did manage to do the school disco which was a big my ambition once I ticked that box I made some light boxes at home. I bought a 15 quid light controller, second hand, built my own light boxes. And I was really skint at that point to get it going. I I used cellophane from biscuit tins in front of the light bulbs to give them some color and started advertising to do mobile DJing. And from that, I ended up doing like everything, weddings, retirement parties, kids discos, stuff like that. That was from sort of 15, 16 onwards. to get again, it was all really low level. So I sussed out that a lot of pubs had got jukeboxes and I wasn't sure what they did with the records afterwards. So I went and started going into pubs and saying, can I buy you your jukebox records? And they went, yeah, we just chuck them away. And I was like, what? So so yeah, so I started buying jukebox, X jukebox seven inches. And that was how I built up my catalog of, of kind of dance music and, and a broad enough catalog to be able to go and do loads of different events. And I, I still maintain to this day, if you can start off DJing and you can handle a whole load of things, like if you can d- DJ a wedding, then you've got my full respect for that.
0: Norman Cook said exactly the same thing on this podcast. Wow. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. Tim, how
1: about you? Where did you grow up? I grew up in London and then moved to sort of Hertfordshire, then to Lincolnshire. And I kind of got into music buying singles when I was probably about 13, 14. So I lived in a little village in the middle of nowhere. And then we had a garage in the village that sold seven inch singles. So I'd always just spend my pocket money just buying singles. Like a lot of other kids used to do sort of cause you had nothing else really to spend your pocket money on. Back then you'd have video games and you know, it was before the internet. So I spent all my money on singles. And I just, I've always, I always liked the idea of DJing. And I remember, I, I couldn't, I remember seeing, DJs I remember seeing the first time I saw Technics 1200s and they were really expensive and I I wanted to learn how to mix but the only way I could do that was to borrow my mum's turntable and I would put a record I remember this I put a single on it it was a direct drive turntable put a single on it and then I'd have a cassette with the top 40 playing and then I'd try and remember just trying to keep them running in time by pushing it around and that was my first kind of thing into mixing and i remember and hounding my dad to go to tandy to buy a they had a cheap mixer which was about 49.99 so i've got, I got my first mixer and i just used that for a few years with one turntable and plug, plug the cassette into the other one and then when i was 17 i got my first job and remember this my first pay packet i managed to get some techniques and I just, I just was hooked on it. All my friends were into like guitar music, and they kind of gave me a lot of grief because I just, they'd go out and I'd just stay at home and I'd practice in my room and practice. And then it was 1986, 87. I, I thought I was going into a DJ competition, which was the Technics UK DMC thing, and had a regional heat. I went and entered it, and I was never playing in front of a crowd. I was that nervous and shaky. I, I really messed up badly. But I got an experience of playing in front of a crowd and I thought, well, I'll just go back again next year, which was 87 or, 87 or 88. And then I went back and then I won my heat and I got into like the semifinals, which is in London. And I couldn't get anybody else to go with me. And I thought, I kind of chickened out. I thought I should go down there and do it, but I just, I didn't go on my own and I just thought I'm not going to win this. I wasn't confident enough, so I didn't go. But out of that, I kind of won this jacket and I thought oh, I can maybe to make something in my life doing this. And this part I was living in Harrogate. I managed to get a job in a little club in Harrogate and I was earning like £25 a night playing for five hours. And I did that. And then I decided to to set my own night up. I did it with a friend and I set this night up um, just playing house music. And it was at the time of rave when everything was just going crazy. And we'd be full every week and we'd have queues down the street. And we started to book a few guests. I remember we got like Sasha over. And right at the start of his, you know, when, right at the start of his career, and he was, he got like hundred quid kind of thing. It was just, yeah, it was just, it just went crazy. And then, but we had this club and on a Saturday night, we didn't know what to do. And we thought we need to do something different. And a friend of mine had been over to Leeds and he'd seen Jez DJing in a club called Gallery, doing a night called Mile High Club, the way he played disco and funk. So he got Jez in to do the Saturday night and that's how I met Jez. So Jez would come over to Harrogate and, and DJ in his club. And, and then I kind of started going on Saturday night to watch what he did. And he came on the Friday. What was your night called? The night on the Friday in Harrogate was called The Mix. Uh, well, the club was called The Mix. And it was just, it, we just called it The Mix. So it wasn't, it wasn't a named night. And then when I met Jez, then there was a house night at the gallery. And, you know, he kind of brought me over to that. And it, we kind of had this night called Bliss.
0: Jez, what do you remember about meeting Tim for the first time?
1: A couple of things. One is
2: he just looked cool uh, <laughs> and he had a cool Jeep. And then I saw him DJ and I thought he's doing some really interesting things with house music that I hadn't seen before. And I'd seen te- you know, te- quite a lot of DJs. And I could. And our manager, who we met in Air, he told me that he'd, he'd seen – a couple of named DJs. I don't want to name them just in case the story's wrong. But basically, they were big DJs, just with their head in their hands, trying to work out how Tim was doing stuff. And basically, t- Tim had taken—I can remember him—Nick I, I this this trick off him to try and look cool myself. But basically, he was doing two copies of things, which is a real hip hop mentality, taking it, but with house music. So he'd you he was doing his own edits on the fly. He'd have like he'd have like a house big house track going on, and and in the mix in Harrogate a lot of history has been written about rave and it tends to a lot understandably focus on inside the M25 or Manchester. But This was happening all over the country. And in Harrogate, just rammed, go across and he would be cutting two copies of, of the same track, just making his own edits of it. And it all worked. It wasn't like a, an indulgent thing where everyone had to stop and watch what he was doing. It just flowed. And the way he selected his music, I was just thinking that's that's so clever the ways it's like the music making the whole and get overused the whole cliche of a journey and stuff but club music it was pre-phones so a lot of the time people were just in the moment with whatever the DJ was doing and he just just had it so I, I thought he's really talented we need to get him into leads, so that's why he came across and started DJing at the place where we
1: were based we both found out that we put records out so we're both Jazz had been making music in industrial bands that he'd been in, and he'd toured over Europe and done the transit thing, and I'd never did the transit thing, and we we'll should talk about later, because <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd I'd done kind of more this kind of electronic bleep music, and I was I had records out on this label, Little Label in Sheffield called Ozone, so we both had put music out, and so but we come from different backgrounds so when you listen to utah's record you do hear house in it and but you also hear sometimes a lot more a lot more different styles and that so it's never been a forced thing with it. it's kind of a collision of what we've talked about in our backgrounds like me coming from sort of electronic bleeping hip-hop and jazz coming from you know industrial listening to metal and being a DJ and funk and disco, which is why you can never really pigeonhole Utah because we've got too many influences.
0: Where was Utah's born?
1: I would say Leeds. You're a Leeds
0: band? Yeah. And how was Utah Saints born? It, was, it all was born
2: with, with what can you do for me. So as Tim says, I, I was we were both in bands and I'd had some tracks out. I'd started in Leeds in a, a surf band.
0: What were the bands
2: called? Okay, so the surf band was called Surfing Dave and the Absent Legends famous for a, a, a whistle test uh, appearance. He did, it, Dave did it on his own without the rest of the band. And we were on, also on a kid's program called Hold Tight, which was from Alton Towers. But anyway, that was, so it was Surfing Dave and the Absent Legends. And when that band split, I joined an electronic band called the Cassandra Complex, just as they had a couple of number one indie singles in Germany. So I'd, I'd gone to Leeds to go to uni, dropped out of uni straight away, do not drop out of uni, people. And off I went a three and a half months tour with Cassandra Complex. Actually, I was running both bands at the time because I did 168 gigs in, in one year, because remember that between two, two different bands. And when I joined the Cassandra Complex, the guitarist joined Henry the Rollins Band and we've got in touch ever since. And then I left the Cassandra Complex and started my own kind of electronic industrial rock band called MDMA and it was called MDMA before MDMA became a thing, and I was talking about this a few weeks ago with uh, Mark Archer from Alt Night, just how basically accidentally we locked down that name, and that's why no acid house tracks came out under the name MDMA, which is a fairly obvious name to come out on. But yeah, we 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 thought we we discovered this name, and it was MDMA, and it was it was at the time an unknown drug that had been used as a truth drug in the war, and we thought quite like the idea it's a truth drug and it, but it's also known as ecstasy but nobody's really heard of it and we'll call it we'll we'll if anybody asks us we'll just say we're called mega disco metal allegiance which um and, and mdma was just the acronym for that and so i'd i'd stopped that point and then i'd i'd left mdma I'd, and i got one of the like an early akai sampler and i was really fascinated by samplers and public enemy and Public Enemy, just the chocolate production on, on, on stuff. Chocolate Brothers producing, especially It Takes a Nation of Millions, and the production on it. And I'd read about it, how they'd, they'd, they'd just been sampling loads of stuff, creating chaos, and then making tracks out of that. And I thought, oh, that isn't brilliant. So I'd got this sampler. I went down to Jumbo Records in Leeds, which is an amazing record independent record shop. Bought a few records for, for the club night. They'd got, they'd got a bargain Bin of CDs at 50p each. So I bought five. One of them was a rhythmic CD, and on the B side, they'd put a, a new version of a remastered version of There Must Be an Angel. So I took, took that home. I thought, our oh, vocals on its own, I'll try it in a sampler. Couldn't get in time, so played a new melody with it. So instead of going down the, the original melody, it's, it had this new melody to make it fit. Put some beats under it. I've got a very simple setup at home. Dropped it onto cassette, took it across to Tim's Night on the Friday. At that point, Tim and I had only met about
1: Six times, haven't we? Yeah. and we and we'd only known each other for about three months. I dropped it straight away. I heard it on the thing and dropped it on the night, and and then basically I just it went off, and I thought this is cool, but just thought I it, it needed a few little things. So the next thing I was in the studio with Jazz over in Leeds doing some work on it with him, and then I and I had kind of done a, like a B side as well, and so yeah, I jumped jumped on the track. He said, oh, it needs a couple of extra things. So I took took it back and got the Gwen Guthrie sample from a Peanut Butter,
2: Sly and Robbie uh, album.
0: What made you choose Gwen Guthrie?
2: There has never been any kind of methodology, if you like, behind selecting samples. It's literally been, let's try something and see if it works. And that's where I've discussed this quite a lot because I've I've started doing a little bit of teaching and some of the academics are quite interested in in the process. And what I've realised is that we make music but we think like DJs. So whenever you've got a track playing, you're always thinking, what goes with this? And you're watching the crowd and you're thinking, what's going to work with this? And what's in, and so you've got all this tacit knowledge inside you where you know what's going to fit because you just know something's at the right speed or the right key, or it's got the right vibe about it. But you also have to know how, you know, if, you, if you're doing weddings, you need to know how to get from one genre to another with, without people being too jarring. You can get away with the odd stop i'm stopping house music going in drum and bass big thing but if you're trying to be a transition you need to work out our tracks to go together and the, so the gwen goes thing was literally what's kind of out on its own a little bit that might work and it was it was that and then tim and i went went in the studio together we had we worked on what can you do for me for a few days we had a brilliant engineer called guy hatton who was just so patient and has a jazz background so he was kind of used to I think some of the chaos that was going on uh, and he managed to mix it all together and we pressed up a thousand copies.
1: And
0: that was in, in about the April of 91. Is that in the name of Utah Saints?
1: Yeah. Jess said to me, we had a, we knew somebody who made vinyl. and We thought, right, we'll do to make it stand out a bit more. We'll, yeah. We'll do a thousand copies. We can set, yeah, we'll maybe do it on color vinyl. Jess had kind of hooked me up with the uh, kind of colors and I said, i just, just make it look cool, pick some colors. And, I didn't tell him I was colorblind, so I just picked some colors, <laughs> put it all together, and it looked like it just looked like kind of pukey, sort of orangey vinyl. But it kind of worked, and then so we did a thousand copies, and our whole our whole plan was right. We we're kind of quite scared because we knew it was expensive then to make a thousand records, and we thought we need to sell these to get our money back, and at least then we can have a go at doing something else. That would mean getting in the car. Coming over here, going to Eastern Block, going to Liverpool, going to 3B, all these things, going to all the lead shops and walking in and trying to do a sale or return thing. and We never knew if we'd get our money back. And it was quite a big process, that. But then, as well, we thought we'd maybe just send a copy to um, Pete Tong at the radio and we kind of had a little bat on between us. I, I thought it was really good and I thought he'd play it and just didn't think he would. So we sent it on the Tuesday and sent it to his record label, Double F Double R, and he played it on the Friday, and then then everything went mad. Everything went mad, and then he he basically they rang up on the Monday and Tuesday, and then a lot of other labels rang up as well, and we went down did some meetings, but we ended up signing it. And luckily, they they brought the rest of our because we had about probably about five hundred copies left because we'd given a load out, and they brought the rest of them offers and. And then tried to clear the samples and it came out and next thing yeah it, it was was a big big hit and that was when
0: utah saints really felt like it yeah it, it was a thing
1: yeah i think so the, the name
2: itself came from the end of raising arizona film because the last thing nicholas cage says in in raising arizona is maybe it was utah and that was just an unusual word being sat in leeds just thought it was an unusual word and put the saints bit on to try and make it sound like some sort of team because I've, I've always thought every name is a bit of a a kind of leap of faith apart from the name Metallica, which does exactly what it says on the tin. But every other name's a bit, you know, so you kind of grow into the name. But yeah, that was when it was born. I think I think the whole thing happened very quickly. So we ended up on Top of the Pops, which was, and that as, you know, my sixth form self reading sounds every week and looking at the charts and taping the charts and stuff, to suddenly be involved in all that is is a big, big, big thing. So for, for that, for us, that was a big kind of milestone really.
1: How to
0: DJ? How to DJ with Chris Hawkins?
1: You said it all went a bit crazy. What what does that mean? What? what, How did it feel? In terms of crazy, we ended up. We met our manager because we went up to. We got a call to go up to like rave on a Sunday afternoon. A place called Air Pavilion, and. So outside, it was a beautiful sunny day and there was families walking past with kids ice cream. But inside this building, which was like a hangar, it was just completely going crazy. With these legal or illegal raves? The, that, that, was le- that was legal, but then okay. it was at the time when there were illegal raves and we'd be going off at the weekends and and then we'd, be doing, we'd go around the M25 and do a rave down in, in Essex and we'd get in the car, drive up to Scotland and it was just crazy. But... And this, I think, came from Jez's side, that we always tried to present it as a, a band. So, And suddenly, we, we didn't come into loads of money, but we came into a bit of money, so we felt a bit guilty. So we gave all our mates jobs. So we brought everybody out. And, some, you know, our mates could play as well. And, but suddenly, we, then we went to a five-piece band. And then there's a guy in Leeds called Dave Beer who ran an night called Back to Basics we got hooked up we met dave and dave was our like tour manager and and so that it was so it, it was crazy and then we had a friend who was a who was a policeman in the day and then he drove the van at night but also doubled up as a dancer on the stage so it was like all these people are our friends and keith who was a drummer you know being in bands with jazz and so it was like we had a really good time because we just went off of the weekend, hired a van, and just went around the country doing raves. But were you going out as
0: DJs or a band? We missed out a little bit, but basically
1: I'd started promoting
0: in,
2: in Leeds and it, hiring a function room above a restaurant, and then a guy had come in and bought the, the place, and it went from, for us, promoting to a 250-capacity function room. It became a 1,200-capacity four-room four venue over a couple of years, and rave just had exploded. So we were already promoting Thursday nights as a, the Mile High Club kind of disco, Friday nights with Tim D, Jane. Monday nights was 10p PM pint night because we couldn't get it to work any other way. And I, I called it Armageddon because it was. And then we oversaw Tuesday night, which was an, an indie night. On top of that, we were doing a night in New York. Tim had his night in Harrogate. We were trying to, trying to expand that those kind of brands. Then the Utahs took off. And the reason it went crazy is we suddenly ended up at just about every rave in the country because we were out, just everybody wanted us to go and appear there. And because we were trying to be a band, we ended up doing PAs. And PAs in raves are pretty chaotic, to be honest, because they're not really set up for bands. So we try and turn up and try and set up an electronic kit, Tim's decks, my MIDI stuff. And half the time you just end up having to, like hope for the best and and play a lot of it off that basically that's we had lots of different gradations of how much we could do live and sometimes we've had very little running live but we were trying to do this 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 pa thing but the reason it went crazy is
1: because we just had everything happening all at once
0: what was a typical set then tim
1: so we because we had what can you do for me then we had a probably another three or four tracks which we had to kind of get together pretty quickly so we could make it a 20 minute thing that would work at a rave. So that's that's what we were doing, really just 20, 20 to thirty minute maximum sets. And the thing about the rave thing was, and I mean, we we wanted to try and do different things in our set sometimes and just like we maybe do a slow track and then we realised it wasn't it didn't always work and we weren't the typical setup where as well, you know, we we had female vocals coming out and it was five blokes on stage. Whereas a lot of the other rave acts would still be sampling kind of big records, but they'd get singer to come out and mime it. And we kind of, we just never felt comfortable doing that. We also didn't feel comfortable having kind of girl dancers or male dancers, you know, just at the front. We, We didn't want to be that kind of stereotypical rave thing. And it wasn't because we didn't like it. We just wanted to do something a bit different. So we kind of always... Raves were good, but then it got to a thing, and the music kind of started to get faster, more breaky, and just, and we kind of finding ourselves kind of just not not aligning with it. So we we went from probably the top of the rave thing to the bottom of the band thing because we thought we want to do this as a band thing, and then you know, so it was early days when you didn't really get electronic bands playing at festivals, and you know, I remember doing a thing called a like Slough Festival, and that was our first sort of big kind of proper gig on a stage and it was that was scary but we made that jump really really early on and it probably look in hindsight it was probably a bit too early but it was a cool thing to do because we went from you know we started playing gigs and we stopped playing raves but back to your first thing we never really because it went really crazy with what could you do for me we never we weren't known as a dj act even though first and foremost we both were djs whereas now if that happened now you have a big record in the club's you just go out straight and DJ, and you wouldn't do a live thing till probably you know, an album out or four or five singles. But back then, it was completely different. Jess, how caught up
0: in rave were you, you know, outside of the music? You don't have to answer, but how indulgent were the two of you?
2: Neither of us have ever taken drugs. There's no judgment in that. In fact, if anything, to be honest, I've, I feel I've always been an advocate for education about drugs. Because when I, in my personal experience, a lot of times when I see it go wrong, it's down
0: to people not having the information. You know, you were late teens, early 20s. How, Why did you resist the scene that was all around you then? Just to, to do with work. If you're working, I find it less hard now
2: to work after a couple of drinks, but I found it hard to work after a couple of drinks. And, and I'll, I'll also, I had a little bit of a phase where I had a couple of drinks and then something would happen in the club where I'd have to suddenly act really sober and, or sober up really quickly. And I thought, like, this is so much effort. I just need to just be, if I'm working, I'm working. That sounds way more cynical than perhaps it is. We, we were about the music. What the, and again, that's a bit of a cliche. I'm not going to say music, it was the drug, but music was incredibly powerful as a force. And we bought into that. And for me, the, the whole, being surrounded by a whole club, where pretty much the whole club's, fairly intoxicated that in enough you get caught up in it anyway and i think a lot of people got caught up in it in the, the general it's like being in in a crowd and again going back to this pre-phone thing i'm not i'm not trying to make too much distinction because it still happens now but very much then then if everybody went in the same direction with, this, with some track everybody was thinking this is amazing track everybody thought it was amazing track and that just spread
0: and it was an amazing feeling tim it wasn't just crowds that were taking drugs it was the DJs that you were playing with the bands that you were playing with
1: yeah I mean like jazz I've I've, I've never taken drugs and, and it was not it was never really a conscious thing it was just like this this everything happened so fast and and I've got like a really addictive streak in me so that if I just I knew that I was scared that if I did it that I would kind of get so caught up in it and enjoy it that it would mess everything up. So I thought, if I don't, I just don't, won't start it. And it was, yeah, it was just really, really, um, yeah. It was hard for me not to do it, but at the same time, yeah, I just wanted to focus on the music. And the same thing, I just, I, I'd been DJing already without doing it, and I'd been kind of doing, you know, playing for three or four hours to kids who were like completely off it and I was kind of connecting and so I thought I'm doing something right anyway I know I've always it's like maybe sound a bit arrogant but with with music and DJ and I I feel it's like it <laughs> bit like a Star Wars thing you know like the force like when you know when Luke goes you feel you know you have got the force it's kind of like I always think when I'm playing a track it's I don't prepare anything for what I'm going to do next I just I just think oh, it's going to come to me. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And and I can't explain that. And but I know what I'm going to do next. But and if I don't know, I know it's going to come to me in the next two minutes. Mm. By what I'm doing, something's going to come into my head, and yeah. it's, and it's like that kind of. It's a similar analogy to the, the force, and and it's yeah. not. I know, I don't want to be arrogant about it, but it's just like <laughs> I have to think. And that comes to certain people and some people it won't. It's like being an artist. Some people you can just draw a picture and some people, I'll never be a brilliant artist, but some people just gifted with doing that. And I just think it's certain things. I'm not saying that I'm an amazing DJ or gifted in that, but I just, I, I feel like I know what record to play next. If you've got a record playing, so what What are you going to play next? It'll come to me. And some people go, I don't know what to play next. And I, do you know what I mean? And I can't explain that. Yeah. Similar similar thing, I, I think, um,
2: I've also got a bit of an addictive personality, so I, I think that it, it was something I never wanted to start. Plus, um, my mum was a pharmacist, and she always used to... to and she worked in a, a, a few challenging hospitals where she saw a lot of casualties, I think. And I think, so from a very early age, she was kind of scaring me with that. Also, I have to say, and you probably got this anecdotally from from a lot of people, is that the worst problems in, in nightclubs... Are usually around alcohol and when we were running clubs where apart from the the fact that, that people were there was lots of illegal trade in there which which was another kind of challenge for everybody the, the, basically there was never any trouble never any trouble everyone was just going with the music and and the, so i really want to stress that we, we're not judgy about that no, at all
1: i i think as well it just i think when if you drink or take I, you, I just think it brings something out of you that's there already it is there in your head and it is there in your personality or whatever, some, works, for yeah, people, whatever really. works for people whatever works for people and i and i've not really needed to do that i just because i can kind of put myself in a zone what i need to be in the instinct that you're talking about knowing what you're going to play next yeah and
0: never panicking yeah. always thinking i, yeah. I, I will know it, yeah it's kind of i'm not su- suggesting that you said it, you don't feel like it's a gift as such it's just something that you can do and you're comfortable with. It's not dissimilar to doing the radio where, yeah. you know, you're going to open a fader and, and start talking. Yeah. But not really knowing what you're going to say. But it, I guess it may come back, Tim, right to the start of getting into music at a really young yeah. age and, and,
1: and, yeah. and like teaching yourself. Yeah, and it's a knowledge of... Um, you train your brain. It's a knowledge of music and, and that only comes, you know, like, like if you do anything, you put a lot of hours into it, you just get knowledge and experience yeah. and i think that comes from listening to my records all my life so and yeah if any advice for, for me for a dj people go to me oh what's a sort of one bit of advice you can do for a dj and and i, I always think go back to what you said i think the most important thing is the record you play next if you can mix it you got any skills and that's cool it's a bonus but at the end of the day people don't people are in a club and they don't care, you know, what you're doing. They're just interested in what record's going to come next.
0: That's really kind of going to be reassuring for a lot of people yeah. listening to this, DJs that might be starting out, for example, and humbling, I yeah. think, to hear because you're at the top of your game, you know, you are craftsmen DJs. Yeah. It's pretty cool that you're not that that yeah. asked about how good people's mixes are.
2: No, that's, that's I'm really glad you brought that up because... We have come across up and coming DJs who do get they get very worried about the technical side of things. I've always said that the most important thing is is the selection, and you can get away with clattering a mix as long as you, as long as you realize if you're clattering a mix and you you, you know that it's out of time, have to, you just got to pull it? You got to stop because ultimately people aren't going to go, oh yeah, they are clattered and then you got it back in time, but it took like a couple of minutes. let just not bother about that. It's 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 and coming from someone. Who used to have to mix disco with real drummers on it, where they speed up and slow down all the time. I'm well used to sort of getting things out of time and, and just, <laughs> uh, but ultimately, you just have to trust that
1: you're, you're selecting the correct track and you're picking up on the mood of everybody else mm. and you're in that zone with everybody else. Classic example of that is um, back in the day when I first met Jazzy, he, he, I went to his night when he was doing the disco thing and he said, I need to listen to Luke and you bring me this record in. And, and I go, cool. And, uh, and so I got the record out and queued it up and I spent ages trying to get this disco mix in time got it in time brought it in it have to be <laughs> it happened to be cele- Celebration by calling the Gang I spent all this time queuing it up on out, but it didn't matter because when I brought it in I put the wrong side on it, it went Celebramos and it was the Spanish version <laughs> 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 and everybody's looking at me like that so there you go that's a classic example of why it's important to play the right record rather than your mixing ability because my mixing was spot on but it, it was a spanish version
0: wow amazing stories and there's more that was part one of two with utah saints part two will follow on the how to dj podcast feed how to dj how to dj thanks for listening please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcasts from